Sometimes old habits are difficult to break. So if you were not noticed, I got ahead of myself a moment ago before the doxology, but uh, I am delighted to be able to be here this morning and to be here, I guess, in perpetuity. Uh, we uh, I've, uh, came up earlier this week. Uh, first time I walked outside, I couldn't see anymore. I had not been struck blind, but the 100% humidity steamed my glasses. And uh, <laughs> for the moment, I wondered, Will I ever see fall again? Um, and uh, so, other than the rain, I'm glad that it's here. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. The book of Galatians is an interesting letter. Paul was uh, probably never more terse than he was with this, uh, this group of people and, uh, and is very pointed. Nevertheless, throughout this letter, uh, there are tremendous gems that are important to our lives uh, that we need to be reminded of and that we can apply in very practical ways. Our focus this morning will be on verse 6, but for context, uh, I want to begin our reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 6. A little bit later, we'll also uh, look at verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we gather this morning, I do pray that you would speak to us. We thank you for the word that has been given to us, the word that we may study and memorize and even learn. But we also come, having been reminded and having experienced in our own lives, that unless you are at work within us, unless your spirit enlightens and illuminates, what we know produces no fruit. But we know that your word does not come back empty, that it produces the intended, intended fruit. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you would be at work within us this morning, that as we consider these simple words, nevertheless, they might shape us and conform us, that we might be more like Christ. We pray to you, Lord, that you would be at work even as we take this time to diligently study and pray that you would be honored by our attention, but we would be blessed by your presence, by your spirit, and by your grace. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, who is himself the Word incarnated. Amen. Mitch was approaching his 40th birthday, and he began to show all of the signs of a midlife crisis. He loved his wife, and he loved his children. It was the rest of life that he wasn't loving so much. His job no longer was particularly interesting, and he'd had some setbacks at work, as is probably true for anybody who uh, works uh, anywhere for any length of time. But these particularly troubled him, frustrated him, made him think that maybe he should do something else. But 
you know, at 40, life was almost over, so uh, what else could he begin to do? He began to think back on his life and what he thought that he might accomplish by this point in time, and he realized he hadn't accomplished near what he thought that he would just 20 years ago. And then as he looked at what was left undone and thought of the days that he may have remaining, he realized that a lot of the things that he just assumed it would take place, he never probably would. They would never get done. So in his state of depression and sometimes his moaning, moping around the home, he began to depress everyone else and get on his wife's nerves. And so she told him he needed to go take a vacation. She wasn't going with him. He needed to take a vacation. And so he and two of his friends decided that they would go out west and drive cattle from New Mexico to Colorado. Now, some of you may recognize this description already, not the moping, but it is a scene from on the premise behind the movie City Slickers with uh, Billy Crystal. But surprisingly, within that movie, there is profound and significant spiritual insight. It's not so much in the depression, but what takes place on the cattle drive. See, Mitch, played by Billy Crystal, goes out to the, uh, to the ranch, and while he's there and he's trying to make friends and using his own breed of New York sarcastic humor, he makes a number of friends, but he alienates others, particularly a trail boss, a gruff, surly, old cowboy named Curly, played by Jack Palance. I'd do my Jack Palance imitation, but it wouldn't sound like him anyway. Jack Palance took exception and dislike to Mitch's sarcasm, his sense of humor from the very beginning. And so the more Mitch tried to win him over, the further the two came apart. Later on, as they were greeting one another and as Mitch was trying to endear himself, one morning he asked Curly, Curly, have you killed anybody today? And Curly says, day ain't over yet. Mitch was a little stunned when Curly picked him to go out to find a stray cow, one that was ready to deliver a calf and had got away from the herd. And so the two of them went out alone for an overnight trip. Mitch was afraid that he was going to be done in. But soon he just allowed his depression to take over and his moping, and he began to whine and moan to a very unsympathetic Curly. And Curly finally said, you know, listen, all of you guys, you come from the east, you come out here, you think a week out here is going to clear your head, set you straight, and give you perspective for life. You think you're going to find something. What you need to know is there's only one thing that matters in this life. And Mitch says, please tell me, what is it? And Curly said, that's what you have to figure out. Now, that's the profound spiritual insight. It doesn't sound like it at first, but it's really amazing when we read this particular passage and we realize Paul says essentially the same thing that Curly says. Curly says there's only one thing that matters in life, and he says that's what you have to figure out. Paul says there's only one thing that matters in this life also, and he doesn't say he's going to leave it for you to figure out. He tells us, because there is only one thing that matters in life, and it's not different for every person. It is the same thing for every person, and it is expressed in different ways, as we will look at this morning. But Paul says in verse 6, essentially, the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself through love. Very simple words, but are very profound. One commentator says that this is probably or, or perhaps the most important verse in this entire letter. It encapsulizes everything that Paul was trying to get to in just really two aspects, two bullet points. We're going to look at this in a moment as the two bullet points because in these words, 
that are just a portion of one verse, Paul tells us that this is the gospel that is personalized, and this is the gospel that gets mobilized. Now, in context, we need to understand what Paul was saying, because in some ways it seems rather strange, and he was directly confronting a group of people who had some serious misunderstandings. Paul saying to them, first part of that verse, look, in Christ, in other words, anyone who has trusted Christ, who has received Christ, who has been engrafted and united with Christ, been united with other believers in Christ, anyone who is a believer in Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. Now, for most of us, we would say, big deal, we understand that. But when Paul was writing this, and to the people he was writing this, this was serious. I mean, this was a big deal. Their particular error had been that having received Christ, they had begun to feel the need to have more external signs of their faith. In other words, genuine Christianity is to be expressed not in faith and repentance and faith again and believing again, but genuine Christianity may begin there, but then it must be shown by wearing merit badges of different kinds. And circumcision was one of the foundational ones they had. And it's easy for us to look at them, looking back and saying, you know, what fools. But when we do that, we actually misunderstand something, is that they thought they were clinging to God's very word. Because God had instructed through Abram that circumcision was to be applied to everyone who was part of the household of faith and even to be applied to their children before they'd come to faith. That was what marked somebody's belonging to the household of faith. And so... They thought that this was an act of faithfulness. They thought this is what was necessary. And you hear Paul coming and saying, circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. We could replace that in, in our culture with any, any number of things, things that we consider to be essential aspects of our, our church life, things that would then perhaps be as shocking for us. We need to understand that what Paul was saying is shocking. In fact, the people hearing this perhaps thought or likely thought at first that what he was saying is unbiblical, disobedient, unworthy of God. But what Paul says is profound. And what Paul says is important. And what Paul says is, is pertinent for us also because what he says as we explore this this morning should shape both the priorities and the practices of anyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't have the time this morning to go into detail or to exhaust anyway the, the, all of the implications. But as we do look at it from those two aspects of the gospel personalized and the gospel mobilized, I hope that these words will create a framework for you, for me, for this church, reinforcing the ministry of the church, a framework for which we can live and we can evaluate where we are. Are we in the frame or are we outside of the frame? First thing we need to look at is, as I said, is I call this the, this is the gospel personalized. And I say that in one sense because that's the, that's the gist of the entire letter to the Galatians. Paul is calling a people back to the gospel that they had known. And they had in one sense not forgotten, but they had in another sense forsaken it. Paul had planted this church some time back, and Paul had a relationship with them that he knew them well. And because he knew them well, he knew of their past. He knew that they had come out of their paganism and they had embraced the gospel. In chapter 3, Paul says, 
Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Other place, he talks about them having received the Spirit. Paul was confident that the people that he was writing to were believers. And so we who are here today who are believers don't need to look at this letter and say, this is what unbelievers need to hear and understand. Paul's writing to believers who have the same problem that I have. I know the gospel, and I just find myself wandering, as the old hymn says. These people were believers who had seen and believed that Jesus Christ had been crucified for them and had risen again. He was their hope and salvation. They believed the gospel. They began with the gospel. But over time, the message of the gospel became sidelined. They didn't disregard it. They didn't deny it. They just thought it was merely foundational. It was the entry point. It's your ticket into the ball game, your ticket into the event. But once you're in, you need to make life for yourself. You need to make things happen. And when that got sidelined, it made Paul both angry and concerned. Because Paul, if you read his letters, you will find over and over again, and not only Paul, but you see this also in Peter and in John, would say you never move beyond the gospel. The gospel must be center always. It's living out of the gospel, not beyond the gospel, not, not instead of the gospel. So Paul gets very terse in this letter, and he calls them on their idea of what it means to grow and to live as Christians. In fact, at one point, Paul says, who's bewitched you? He thinks that, and he's, he's suggesting to them, the only way that seems fathomable to him, that somebody who had understood the gospel, had embraced the gospel, had the spirit within them, would then say, eh, that's nice, but I need to focus my attention on something other than what Jesus has done for me. I need to do what I can do for God rather than to live out of what God has done for me. Paul says, the only way I can figure that out is if somebody casts a spell on you. I mean, so he says, who has bewitched you? At another point, he asks them a very pertinent question, one that I, I, I want to ask myself regularly, one that I think that all believers ought to ask each other on a regular basis. He begins with a rhetorical question when Paul says, let me ask you this. Did you begin with this? Did you receive the Spirit because of what you believed? Because of what you did? Now, everybody there and their theology would have essentially been fine at this point, and they would have all understood you received the Spirit not because of what you did. It's not a prize that you earn, but because you believed and they received it by grace. And so that rhetorical question asked, Paul doesn't say anything more about that. He asks another question. His second question is this. Then having begun with the Spirit, do you really think that you are going to perfect yourself by your own efforts, or begun by grace, are you going to perfect yourself with your own efforts? It's a startling question that reminds us that we're not alone when we find ourselves wandering from the centrality of the gospel. At the very least, we have the Galatians. The reality is we have all of humanity and all of the church. We're all prone to do this. And Paul passionately calls them on this, and he, he's begging them. And that's the whole premise behind the letter. And here, Paul is being very specific, summarizing what they need to be reminded of. The only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself in love. Now, when Paul's talking about faith, Paul is not speaking of faith the way some do. Some of our TV evangelists, I won't name names, but they're out of Houston, and they smile a lot and tell bad jokes. Um, 
just this cotton candy type thing. You know, I believe in God, and I believe, and I, I feel something, and, and, and the, there's nothing wrong with any of those aspects. But Paul's dealing with something real, something substantive, and something powerful. When he says the word faith, the only thing that matters is faith. It's shorthand. It's a singular word he's using as a summary for everything else he's dealing with this entire letter. It is shorthand for the gospel. All of the truths of the gospel. When Paul is already talked about in this letter, and Paul already believes and he expounds everywhere as he's writing, and the Galatians had already heard that they were sinful. And they were alienated from God. And they had no hope of being in relationship with God, no matter what they had tried. And they had believed, and they'd left their previous ways, their pagan ways, and they had embraced the one true God through the person of Christ who had given himself for them. They knew that about themselves. They also knew that God loved them, and it was God's love that compelled him to send his son, and Jesus' love as God who willingly came. As Jesus says in John, Nobody's going to take my life. I give it. This is the demonstration of his love for us. And so Paul's dealing with those things. Paul's dealing very clearly here with our condition, God's love, and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus giving himself in our place. That's what he means when he uses the word faith. Theological word, it's he's dealing with what we believe in and what the scripture teaches about justification, how we are made right and declared righteous with God. And it happens by God's grace through faith alone. And Paul is very clear that nothing can be added to faith for our justification. So Paul, that's, that's what Paul is meaning shorthand here. Faith is all of the truth of the gospel. The only thing that matters is believing the gospel. It's a very personalized thing. Paul's saying that's what matters. You must believe. You must return. You must be connected to that. That's the foundation of it. For some of you, I know that's not the message that you grew up with. Some of you may have grown up in traditions where you were taught that all of these things were true, and this were essential. They were essential components to being made right with God, but you're missing an ingredient. You're missing your own works, your own efforts, your own... Plan, attempts to be good, and that only when you have what God has done in Jesus and your sincere attempts at being good and being faithful can you have a relationship with God. I saw that summarized in a poster that I had when I was uh, younger. It was a poster, was, I think it was a basketball player that was getting ready to dunk a basketball, and underneath the caption just said, all God asks is that you do your best and leave it to him and he'll do all the rest. Any of you ever heard that uh, saying before or seen that, the poster? It's a kind of a cool poster and really neat. I like the poetry. I like the way that it rhymes. It wasn't until much later that I realized it was hogwash. Um, it was just wrong. I mean, I, it sounds so right, but I began to think about, well, do I do my best? Rarely. And even on those rare attempts that I uh, occasions that I might do the best and, and just exhaust myself, I can't sustain it. And then I had to think, even if I did my best, even if I was able to sustain that, is God impressed? I mean, is my best the same as holiness, perfection? 
righteousness? And the obvious answer to that is, is no. And it also, I realized, it cheapens what Jesus had done. It, it'd be kind of like if I went to lunch with Camper and I was a little short and Camper said, I'll, I'll cover the rest. It's nice if he's going to do that, but when I have nothing, it, it almost seems like it's, it would be cheap grace. As if I'll pay everything and Jesus just says, I'll, 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 figure, I'll just take care of whatever you can't afford. It just is a minimization, it minimizes the, the whole gospel. In that tradition, those of you who grew up Roman Catholic wrestled with that issue. And, and this may be a relatively new message for you. But we need to understand this is what the gospel clearly teaches. Most of you probably didn't grow up in that tradition. And a lot of you here may be saying, of course, it's grace through faith alone. If you're like me and some of your early training or even maybe where you are now is more fundamentalist oriented, maybe a, a way of putting it. Well, at least in my background, I understood intellectually, I understood theologically that um, it was by grace through faith alone. There was a huge disconnect between what I knew and what I felt. And at one point I came to realize that the only difference between my Roman Catholic friends who declared they believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation and their own efforts and my own life was that at least they were honest. They declared that they believed in faith plus works, whereas I said I believed one thing, but I lived as if I believed something else. Because I looked at my own heart, I looked at my own life, and I would find myself anxious, and I would find myself worried. I would find myself sometimes discouraged and frustrated when I had failed, when I realized I couldn't measure up, and thinking, I need to double up, I need to do more. It was all about my work. It was all about what I might want to do. And that's a functional belief that I'm made right with God based on what Jesus has done and what I might do. And that goes back to the whole idea, or at least it, it, it reflects the, the whole mindset that says, I really believe that I should do what I can and let Jesus pick up the difference. And the gospel says, Jesus has done it all, and you and I have nothing that we can add. Paul is passionate about that, and it's important that you and I understand not only the theological components of the gospel so that we say that it is faith, grace through faith alone, but that we live as if that's true and recognize when we are inconsistent with that. Because most of our anxiety, most of our, our frustration, a lot of our depression comes from the fact that we have a significant disconnect between our confessional theology and our functional theology when we know one thing and we feel another, and we don't even think about the fact that there's a disconnect. Paul is calling us in this passage and saying, look, the only thing that matters is faith. It's the gospel. Paul is passionately calling people back to the gospel. We have a tendency to want to work. Jerry Bridges, I may have used this illustration a couple of weeks ago, but that's all right. I'll repeat myself a lot, so get used to that. Uh, but... Uh, but Jerry Bridges in his book, uh, The um, Transforming Grace, uses a, a phrase. He talks about the performance treadmill. It came to him while he was working out on his own treadmill at one point. He realized he might 
work hard. He might work long, but he didn't get very far. He didn't get anywhere as long as on a treadmill. And if you've been on a treadmill, if you work out on a treadmill, it doesn't matter how fast you decide to go. You may burn more calories. You may exert yourself more. You're not going to get any further if you walk a stroll or if you sprint a sprint. You're going nowhere because the treadmill just keeps on rolling. It's a picture of our spiritual lives when we depend functionally on our efforts. Paul's calling these people and he's calling us back to stop to do that. In fact, it's, it's interesting because Paul uses a similar type of imagery that Bridges uses. In verse 7, he says this, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And the picture that Paul is, 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 is of somebody who's in a race, somebody who's running, who gets knocked off course and is unable to finish the race. If you watch the Olympics this summer, you may have seen that one of our American runners, a woman named Morgan, I believe her last name was Euseni, she was expected to compete for one of the medals. I don't know that she was expected to win the gold, but she was expected to be a medalist. Her time was among the best in the world, and she was to do very well. And not in the preliminary, but in the race prior to the championship or the final race of the Olympics, she was performing very well, but somebody who was close at her heels behind her stepped in such a way that she stepped on her foot, and she fell off, and she did not finish. She went from being a medalist to a, a DNF. Somebody had cut her off. Somebody had tripped her. Somebody had hindered her from finishing the race. That's the image that Paul is saying to those of us who begin with grace and we're amazed by the fact that God would love us and he would give his son for us. And we live and we rejoice in that. But somehow, somewhere along the line, we buy the idea, I have to contribute something. And we spend and shift our focus more to our own efforts than to what Jesus has done. Paul says, who, who stepped in? Who's tripped you up? Because if you are there, if you are where I often find myself, we're being tripped up. We need to be aware of that so that we can get back up and get back on course. And on course is not double the effort. On course is to rest in Christ. Paul's passionate about this, and this is exactly what he's calling the people here to in this letter. And so Paul is saying, look, the only thing that matters is that you make sure that you are connected to the gospel, that you're believing the gospel, that you're living in relationship to the gospel, you're living out the gospel. That's the first part of what he says of the only thing that's important. Now, if you're paying attention, you probably may even be ahead of me in this, but you realize I keep saying there's only one thing that's matter, and if you look at this verse, it seems like there's two things. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And so there's faith, especially if I narrowly focus on it as I have already, the specific of believing and resting in the gospel, you would think that that would be all there is. And I say that there's another component. Paul says there's another component. So how is that one thing? The gospel itself that must be personalized also bears fruit. And so while the first aspect of looking at this, the first lens that I, I want you to look through when you look at this particular verse and to think about in your life for the framework of your life and for the ministries of this church is we must individually, corporately, always be rooted in the gospel, reminding ourselves of the truth and then finding out when we are getting tripped or knocked off course so that we're no longer living in that. Not denying them because the Galatians were not denying them, but that we're not centered, that they're not everything. But there's also the gospel mobilized. And there's an old mantra that says, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. 
but the faith by which we are saved is never alone. And it's true. And Paul says that our faith is always accompanied by love. Now it's important that we need to understand that Paul here is not teaching that salvation comes by faith and love as if they are two separate components. What Paul is saying here is that genuine gospel faith by its very nature produces a fruit and the fruit is love. Much like an apple tree is always going to produce apples. It just is the nature. When genuine gospel faith, when you are rooted in the gospel, the natural aspect of that is love. That's what is going to emanate from it. There's an energy that produces, and that's actually the word where in some translations it says expresses, and the ESV it says faith that is working through love. The Greek word there is from the root energeo, and which is, the, you know, if you were to spell it out and use English letters, it would look just like the word energy. Well, until they started spelling it wrong. But it's the same root. And, just, and it shows us there's a power, there's an energy that runs through. And so faith is expressed. There's an energy, that there, it's a conduct. And the ultimate end is, is love. And it produces itself. It, so genuine faith is always accompanied by love because genuine faith always produces love. And the reason that that happens, the dynamic, and I'm not an engineer, I'll never be able to be one, I won't even pretend to be one, but there are two dynamics that are taking place here that enable love to be able to flourish in the lives of those who are connected and believing the gospel. One part of it is by what the gospel gives to the heart, the other part is by what the gospel takes away from the heart. There's constant energy that is at work, and then as those two things are at work, it, it produces love. What the gospel gives to the heart is an appetite for the glory of God. And when we are intoxicated with who God is, and we love God because we realize how much he has loved us, and we just respond and love God, we then love what God loves. And so there's an infusion of the love of God into our lives, into our hearts. And when we love him, we love what he loves, and we love who he loves. What the gospel takes away, what faith takes away is guilt and fear and greed and selfishness. All of these things are things that rob us from an ability to express love. So when I feel guilty, I'm so self-absorbed that I don't have much to give. I feel impoverished. When I feel fear, I'm more worried about whether or not you're going to like me and to accept me than I am about what God has already done for me and given to me. And I confess, that's a very real thing. The real idea with that. I'm meeting people and, you know, it's uh, just wondering when I'm going to drop my first shoe and offend the first person, forget the first thing, and, and, and it, you know, so I'll just let the, some of the air out of that balloon. I'm going to mess up. And somebody's going to be uptight with me at some point. And I'm afraid of that. And because of that, it doesn't allow me to truly love. It may make me perform, but it doesn't allow me to just truly love and to give of myself in the way Christ has given to me. And you may experience similar things in different relationships in your own life. And then there's just flat-out greed and selfishness, which just means I don't care about you. I just care about myself. What are you going to give me? All of those things that just are part of the fallen condition, part of the heart, that are true for many of us, some of us in greater measure than others. The gospel begins to move those out. It starts taking them. It's you know, like a, a dump truck that keeps them coming up, takes the dump, takes it away, dumps it, and it keeps it work. But as erosion comes, it, can, it keeps coming back. 
So the gospel is constantly at work, removing those things from our heart, even while it's filling the gap with God's love, with the grace of God over and over. And so this is creating an energy and a dynamic that produces itself in life. I don't have time to do an exposition on love this morning. It's beautifully described by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. That love isn't self-seeking. It's the model of living as Christ has loved us. It's the prayer that Jesus has for us. But the question we have to say, it's not just enough that kind of love is out there in the atmosphere. Love is in the world. We're believers, and so we love. It's really easy to love people that you haven't met. It's really easy to love a lot of things in general until you start thinking about the specifics and everything that's involved. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, if faith is always expressed in love, in what direction is it expressed? I'm just going to touch on some things for the sake of time. Uh, you'll be able to understand, and we'll deal with these at other times. Again, my hope this morning is just to uh, reinforce and to lay a framework for who we are, what we're about, and root ourselves in the gospel. But the first, obviously, the first expression is love is to God himself. We love because he loved us. We respond to the gospel. We honor him. We worship him. We commit ourselves to a time each week in accordance to his word that says, look, come and be refreshed and renewed. Come and meet me. Come spend time with me. We do it all week long, but we're, we worship through all the week. We, we, we commit ourselves to that. And we live in obedience. Jesus says, look, if you love me, and you want to show you love me, here's how you show you love me. Just obey what I've commanded. And the irony of that is that once we start seeing what God has commanded and the benefits of that, we realize we're getting gifts again. It's not a matter of saying, prove it. But we are so much better off. We are so blessed by obedience that we're benefited. And we realize, I'm trying to show that I love Jesus. And every time I do that, I realize all the more how much he's loved me. So it's through worship and obedience and, and focusing on the glory of God and, and, and loving the Lord. But interesting is, is, is Jesus says if you, that you love me, you'll obey what I command, and, and, and we love the Lord. Um, we, we're not loving only God. The fact that we love because he first loved us, while it clearly points to the fact that we love God, he loved us, we love him. Actually, the verse doesn't say that, and it's much broader than we tend to think. Just as we love because he loved us. In other words, God's love for us, when we love God, when we've been loved by God, it frees us, and we are now able to love not only God, but others. And particularly, the scriptures tell us that we are need to love other believers, obviously within the household of faith, but not limited to this church, this denomination, anywhere where anyone is a believer, we're called to love them, which means that we can't love them in general. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to know people, know their needs, know their hurts, know their joys, celebrate when they celebrate, mourn when they mourn, help when we're able to help. That's an expression of love. We involve ourselves in the lives of other believers. That's part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. That's an amazing, amazing thing. So love is expressed to God. Love is expressed to each other. Love is expressed to our neighbors. We're told to love our neighbors even as we love ourselves, which means we need to know our neighbors, which is not easy anymore in our culture. Suburbia has changed everything. People that used to have front porches and come out on the front porch and see everybody else, now we have back porches. We drive into the garages. We shut the garage door behind us. We go in. We go into our back porch with our six-foot-high fence, and we don't even have to see anybody if you don't want to. Now, I don't know about you, and I've lived in some neighborhoods that, frankly, I liked it that way, and I, if you knew my neighbors, you'd know why. 
Now, the neighbors that we have that we're leaving now behind, we're trying to sell our neighbors with our house and figure, because we've got really good neighbors in our house in, in our neighborhood in Tennessee right now, it's a delight to be able to see them. But we need to know them. We need to be involved in their lives as well. It's not just a matter of caring for those in the household of faith. But God has ex- created us to exist in our communities, in our neighborhood. The church is the only organization, as somebody has said, that exists not for the benefit of those who are members, but for the benefit of those who are not. We've already been blessed and given everything we need. We don't need to hold up on this. We need to scatter into our community wherever you live. Bless your neighbors. Get to know them. Love them. We're told that we are to also be more specific. We're to, to, to love the nations. It's not just a matter of what takes place here. Once we get our own neighborhood fixed out, we'll worry and branch out. But we're very specifically called to love the nations and realizing that there are needs and there's persecution. And we love, we should be involved in trying to alleviate their suffering. We also need to realize that there are places throughout, and remember continually, there are places throughout the world where people have never even had the opportunity to hear the name of Christ. And out of love, we want them to have what we have. And so we need to be intentional about how are we going to get from here to there. Maybe we can pool our resources and send somebody. We can partner with others. Maybe God is calling you to go. God is calling me to go. But how will we take the gospel? How will we demonstrate love in a practical way? And we are to love the nations. We're specifically, whether it's in nations or in our own neighborhood, the scriptures calls us that we are to love the poor and the outcasts. We're to love the ones that nobody else loves. It's a unique aspect of Christianity that has always been the case to the point that it was even scandalous in the early church. But it must be on our hearts because God loves the poor and the outcast. I don't want to say he loves the poor and the outcast more than he loves other people, but other people are easier to love. When people are outcasts and are rejected, there's usually a reason they're rejected. Now, part of it is because people are hard-hearted, and then there's something about them that is odd or unbecoming, unpleasant. These are the people that Jesus says, I love. And if I love them, you are to love them. And so it must be a part of our lives, and it must be a part of this church that we find the people that may be hidden in the cracks and find a way to go live among them, to love them, to help them. And then the last one that I really have spent time talking with the Lord about, not so much in a spiritual sense of saying, Lord, are you really sure um, of this? Because I I really, I don't like this one. Is God says we're to love our enemies. The people who hate you. Not just that they just, don't like you and despise. Despise means says, I don't think you're worthy of any consideration. The ones that actually are your enemies are the ones who dislike you and they make efforts to show you that they dislike through things that they do to you, to undercut you, to hurt you, to, to do something. There are our enemies. And Jesus says, look, the radical nature of my love is so great that it should be expressed to enemies. After all, you are my enemies. And when you are my enemies, here's how I responded. I died for you. And so there is so much weight, there's so much resource, there's so much wealth in the love of Christ that he says, I know you don't want to do it. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it can be painful. In fact, it could even be deadly. But the wealth of the gospel that you have, you don't need to worry about anything. You have everything that you need. But pour out my love, even on those who hate you. There is no place that love should not be expressed. And so in that sense, it seems like we can be kind of general, but all of these, we need to look at our lives and say, 
is our love being expressed in all of these different directions? It must be intentional. It must be specific. The gospel points to that. It's not that we doing this is going to add to the gospel. It's going to find out what, in what lane we were tripped up. In what way are we no longer connected to the gospel? Because the gospel power, gospel energy produces love, and it goes out into all of these different directions. And so at different times in my life, or perhaps in your life, if some of these are absent, someone's tripped you up in your lane, it's an opportunity to repent and realize all over again, it wasn't because of how good you were that Jesus loved you in the first place. So you don't need to fear seeing that in your life. We don't need to fear if there's, if any of this is lacking in this church. And I'm new enough to be ignorant if it is. So if anybody's feeling hot under the collar, I'm going to claim my ignorance. I'm going to do that for a while. Um, anytime it's convenient, I'm going to do that. Um, but you don't need to fear it. The reason you don't need to fear it is because Curly was right. The only thing that matters is faith, the gospel, that saved you while you were Christ's enemy. It is so taking root in your soul and it's bearing fruit of love in directions all around you. You may be here this morning as one who, you know, doesn't like doctrine. Doctrine just divides. You may be new to this church and to the PCA and you wonder about these friend of mine, he keeps on talking about the PCA types. That's, that's his shorthand way of saying you people who are stuck in theology, keep wanting to talk about theology. And you may have experienced that, and, and certainly I'm guilty, and our denomination is guilty of some of you, but you may see the negative aspects. One of the things that you need to understand is this passage, this verse, tells us that doctrine is important. Doctrine, though, is dynamic. It's the doctrine, the truth, an understanding of what Jesus has done for us. It must be understood, must be embraced, and we must be reminded of. So we need to understand those things. And some of you may be theologues, people who like to study theology and uh, like to tell everybody you study theology, and, and that's, well, I hope you have another life too. Um, but this verse tells us very clearly that it's a challenge to us to evaluate our theology not by the amount of it, or whether anybody's impressed, but whether it's fruit and people would say they're being loved by you, by me, by us, because we know we have been loved by the one who has created all and who sustains all. My hope is that we're always reminded and always reminding each other there's only one thing that matters. Faith that expresses itself in love, and it will express itself many ways as God directs us. Let me pray. Our Father, as we come to this, I pray with thanksgiving that you have given us your word. And I thank you more so that you've given us your spirit, that you have given us life. May we live in life, our life in your spirit, in accordance with your gospel. But we need you to be at work, to show us where we're off track, and to show us your greatness. So Lord, we pray that you would do that. I pray this in Jesus. Amen.